This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Small Town Cultists. Theosophical Composers. NPC Party Members. And Wilhelm Reich. When Bobby would yell for seconds on fish and thirds, his mother said his big mouth would give him brain fever like his cousin Larry Marsh, and how would he like that? And Bobby said just fine, and his mother sent him to his room without any fish at all. Thus begins the strangely familiar, yet disturbingly alien illustrated tale, Where the Deep Ones Are. It's part of Atlas Games' mini mythos series, which also includes the delightful parodies, Cliff Howard, the Big Red God. Goodnight Azathoth, and the Antarctic Express. All of them written by yours truly. Right now, and for a limited time, Atlas is offering a buy-two, get-one-free bundle of mini-mythos goodness. Which makes delightfully subversive gifts for friends, relatives, and especially their children. Leap online, Mythos fans! Point your browsers to atlas-games.com slash Cthulhu4kids. That's Cthulhu, the number four, and the word kids. Or follow the link in the show notes. That seems wise. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the friendly confines, the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. But we are within the gaming hut, and we open up a door within the gaming hut into a small town, a town of mystery, perhaps a town of horror, a town of the supernatural, a town that we don't know anything about because we're going to make it up right now. Robin, what are we doing? So we're going to demonstrate the process of creating a series of linked Game Master characters who are meant to all serve together in an adventure. And in this case, the role they are serving is that of small-town cultists or conspirators. So uh, you know the drill. This is the one where the characters roll up into town, and it seems to be a a nice, safe, bucolic place. Uh, Possibly they've been you know, called in for some sort of mission. If it's the Ezoterrorist, there's some sort of weird manifestation that's happening. If it's a Trail of Cthulhu game, they've uh, got some reason to come to town. And, and uh, you know, but these are the people who are deep down involved in whatever the shadiness, the mystery is. And we're going to leave that sort of blank so that you could use these characters in any manner of uh, different uh, scenarios in which you run into a, a conspiracy, supernatural, or just uh, plain old nasty in a small town. I have taken a bit of preparation ahead of time because names uh, can be hard to come up with on the fly, just sort of verbally, and we want to be able to remember <laughs> the <laughs> names of the characters as we create them on the fly. I've uh, created a number of different names. That's all we have to go on. And so we're going to uh, start uh, riffing on these characters and find connections for them. So the first name I have, uh, it's a small town. The the obvious theme here is that uh, uh, things are not as they seem under a a veneer of normalcy, that uh, normalcy can actually be terrifying. And so let's come up with the the normalist name uh, that we can uh, think of, the most white bread name possible. And so I've come up with the name Jim Adams. Uh, We're creating him first, so presumably he's sort of a nexus of the conspiracy or one of the very important figures. So, uh, Ken, uh, start us off by telling us a little about Jim Adams. Uh, Jim Adams runs uh, the Adams House, which is the sort of inn, uh, hotel, B&B, depending on the exact circumstances. If it's a small town, it's a small hotel. It would be like a large house, not a dedicated building. And it's where you stay when you're in town because Jim is always there with the good hospitality. He also runs the diner. Um, he has a garage that is part of the hotel for people who drive or driving through sort of whenever you're looking for any sort of tourist business, you turn around and there's Jim Adams behind the counter of it helping you out, smiling in an avuncular fashion, played by some gray-haired but still ruddy, healthy-looking character actor, ready to uh, twinkle, uh, offer a folksy homily, perhaps, or 
simple advice such as, well, I wouldn't go up into those uh, mountains without a guide, given as the number of uh, old abandoned mine shafts. They're dangerous if you don't know where you're going or whatever, right? He's he's just always there to sort of know wherever you are is what you figure out eventually. But right now he's just, he's being helpful. And, you know, he's unlike other people in, in this town. This town can be a mite suspicious of strangers, but not old Jim. Jim's welcoming. Right, because his job is to uh, interface with the public and therefore you have your reason for the player characters to interact with them. It's the inn that they've got to stay at and... If you're going to the trouble of describing who runs the uh, hotel, you're probably tipping your hand a little. But a little uh, bit. the characters may be looking for uh, information to begin with, and so if you describe him, he introduces himself as Jim Adams, and he looks like, and he's wearing a bow tie, and he has uh, tells talks about the fishing. That's a bit too much for him. But if you just say, "Oh yeah, there's this avuncular uh, older guy who runs the bed and breakfast," he gets you all set up and asks. If you have any questions about the area, he can uh, tell you where the attractions are. That can sort of be a lighter hint that he might, you might be putting him there for the sake of information. And then you could then uh, sort of trick the players into being the ones who ask him about the legends surrounding the mine and the weird creatures that have been spotted there in the past or the disappearing hitchhikers or, or what have you. Uh, next on the list, we have Rose Adams. Uh, she has the same last name, so let's and and the name Rose implies that. Uh, uh, well, I suppose she might be a young kid with the, the you know the old-fashioned name coming back into uh, service. But I'm going to say that Rose is Jim's wife, so uh, she helps him out at the bed and breakfast. She's sort of the quiet one behind the scenes. We all know what that means. She is probably the power behind the scenes. She is the contactee of the mind creatures if that's what it's about she's the, uh, she she's the black widow spider at the center of the web dining on hitchhiker faces yes and so uh she is uh, uh you might describe her sort of uh, in the background or even wait uh, to have the players ask if there's anyone else working in the hotel and uh she's uh, probably short i'm seeing her kind of with uh, a red hair that's just a uh, fleck gray and she's got a real kind of a uh, well, gosh, golly, kind of uh, friendly uh, attitude. But when they talk to her, she's always, uh, you know, always kind of deflects them, turns the questions back on them. And then behind the scenes, you know, once one of them gets captured or they have the chance to uh, conduct surveillance, then they see the the real Rose, the take charge uh, cultist who's really pulling the strings uh, between uh, everyone else. So we've got our... Uh, you know, apparent patriarch and our real power behind the scenes. Uh, Ken, uh, what's our next character in this web of cultists who are all working together to do whatever nefarious thing? Well, if Rose Adams is our uh, matriarch, uh, then Dara Dickerson is probably our ingenue. Um, you need an ingenue in a, in a story, and she can perhaps be genuinely conflicted about her role in the cult, or maybe she just exists as a lure for young, uh, single investigators to fall for and be lured out into the woods to be shoved into the mine or eaten by, uh, whatever. Dara is a young woman. Perhaps she runs a little shop. If it's that kind of place, she runs a, 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 a sort of shop that a, an investigator might go into. So maybe it's a, a book, maybe it's the only bookstore in town. Maybe she's an artist and she has an art studio. She somehow signals to the players that this is a fellow outsider and therefore one who can be trusted. And perhaps they uh, fall for that uh, subtle signal because that's how players work. But either way, she sort of maybe even poses as the person who says, we can't talk here. We have to go up into the, uh, up, up into the cemetery and talk. That's the only place we can be uh, alone or quiet. Or she's like, well, you know, if you wanted to go out by the Creek and carry the picnic basket, I wouldn't say no, you big, strong investigator. But however it is, she's trying to get the characters alone and vulnerable or just alone to find out how much they know, but probably mostly alone and vulnerable. I think of Dara as a uh, a long-term landmine of a character. Right. So if we've got the, the leaders and we've got this sort of lure, uh, the next uh, function in a conspiracy that comes to mind is the hammer, the henchman, the scary guy, the one with the sickle, the one who's going to... Uh, wrap the duct tape around them and capture them. So, uh, but we still want to continue to play with this idea of, uh, appearances being deceptive. 
So uh, let's make uh, let's make Leon Dickerson uh, Dara's dad, and it looks like he's sort of getting on in in years, and uh, maybe he even like carries a cane to uh, kind of uh, fool people and indicate that he's a, a nice, uh, safe gentleman. So he looks like one of these uh, guys who was uh, you know a big athletic kind of football player kind of guy in his youth, and now he's uh, he's getting on in years. He's uh, you know he's maybe still fit to play around a golf, but apparently not much else until you get uh, really into trouble with him. And it turns out that his cane is just a steel rod that he uses to beat people to death. And he's uh, incredibly uh, preternaturally strong. And in a supernatural version, he might be the one who is, you know, given the powers uh, to affect uh, physical things. So he might have, uh, you know, been injected with toxin by the mind creatures or, you know, in a non-supernatural thing, he's just, uh, you know, uh, built like a brick outhouse and uh, is one of those people who can, uh, you know, still uh, uh, kick you six ways to Sunday, even though he's uh, well into retirement age. Plus, he's a war veteran of whichever war, so he's got a, uh, a military rifle that he didn't give back at the end of the war somewhere in his uh, house or cabin, depending. Also, uh, we should mention that as a older gentleman, he is often seen playing dominoes with Jim Adams or drinking an extra cup of coffee in the Adams Diner or just sort of around. He's present. He's probably wearing a, a, a trucker hat if we're in the modern time or a um, uh, a sort of a straw hat if we're in the, the, the 20s and 30s. Something to indicate rural complacency and belonging because that's what Leon Dickerson is. He belongs here because this is his place. It's been his place perhaps for millennia, but certainly today. Right. And we want to introduce the idea of the community being insular. So he might be the one who says, oh, you you guys don't look like you're from around here. The last last group of people who came uh, here uh, were kind of disrespectful and we had to uh, uh, see them on their way, but I'm sure you'll be fine. So the, you know, not a, a huge tone of menace uh, off the top, but, uh, you know, a little bit to start to indicate that uh, not everything here is exactly as it ought to be. And that so, also sets up a theme for when he's beating you to death with his steel cane when he talks about your disrespectfulness. Exactly. We won't have any disrespect here. Crash. Crash. Bang. Smash. Uh, so who's up next? Uh, next is Casey Kitzinger. Is Casey uh, male uh, or female in our setting? You're deciding. I'm deciding. Well, uh, since it's a trail of Cthulhu possibilities, let's make it Dr. Casey Kitzinger. And Dr. Kitzinger is the town doctor, and he's the guy who patches you up after that mysterious and unaccountable fall out by the old mine and helps you say, well, maybe you've been drinking. Have you been drinking any of Jim's moonshine? That'll make that memory go away. You just need to be careful. Um, and good old Dr. Kitzinger is... Uh, also folksy, also avuncular. Maybe he plays dominoes, but maybe as a professional fellow, he holds himself a little separate from the Adamses and Dickersons because he went into the city and got a fancy education. But either way, of course, he's still part of the cult. And when he's bandaging you up, maybe he's taking a blood sample. So the coursing things by the mind can always smell you. Or maybe he's doing something else untoward uh, when he's got that tongue depressor in your mouth. Uh, I think we also need a character to be the, the lookout for the cultist, the one who's... Uh... Uh, keeping tabs on the characters and uh, has reason to do so, but also uh, still continues on with this uh, theme of small town normalcy. So I'm going to say uh, Karen Rader is a woman. Uh, she's the sort of head of the local PTA, and uh, she uh, is uh, overtly a busybody. So the uh, that's her normal thing is that, oh, there's somebody new in town. She's got to find out what's going on. What are they doing here? And uh, she might just seem a little... Uh, nosy. She might seem a little uh, worried about... Uh, she might be the one who gives him sort of the red herring that, uh, you know, if people have been uh, disappearing or, or what have you, that it's uh, it's oh, people leaving to go away for the city or it's, you know, there's this uh, down at the trailer park, that's where you want to go and look for those people there. They just, uh, they just come and go. They're transients. They're not really like the rest of us in town. And if there's, a, if there's trouble... I'm sure there's trouble down at the trailer park. She, she can be the one who starts to steer them in the wrong direction, but also the one who's keeping an eye on them. So they, uh, you know, come down from the mine and uh, there's Karen with her binoculars. And uh, she has a, a pretext uh, for why she's uh, looking into them, but also maybe finally she's the one who starts to tip uh, that things are uh, not necessarily what they seem. And so they might decide to 
try and counter surveil Karen, but it turns out that um, Karen, despite her uh, overtly uh, regular folks' appearance, is uh, pretty good at uh, uh, shaking a trail or at uh, at following them, and she's the one who kind of starts popping up wherever they go, and uh, if they succeed in turning the tables on her, might be the one who they follow back to a meeting and get to overhear Rose revealing her true self, for example. Yeah, I, I also think that maybe she's, you know, if she could even show up in the woods and be gathering uh, mushrooms for the uh, church uh, dinner or gathering flowers for, you know, a funeral that needs to be held um, and is maybe vague on whose funeral it's going to be. But she can show up anywhere because, you know, she's uh, she's she's a busybody, as you point out. The thing about a cast of characters is you don't want to have too many of them because then you can't interact with them necessarily. But why don't we just round this up uh, with uh, one more person? Okay. Our last person is Chester Hoffman. We've got one muscle, which is Leon. I think we need another possible muscle. And because most of our folks have been a little older, except for Dara, Chester, I think, is a little younger. And Chester might be the guy who they think of as the muscle. You know, he's the guy who's working out, uh, you know, tearing huge blocks of concrete out of uh, somewhere or, or pulling things out of the mine with just a block and tackle. Now, now and is it too uh, on the nose to say that uh, maybe uh, Chester uh, doesn't seem quite right? Yeah, I, I think if uh, you're if you're going for the familiar, let's go for the familiar. Maybe Chester doesn't seem quite right. And maybe that's one of the ways that Dara Dickerson uses to get the players on side is she's like, well, Chester likes me, but I, I don't think I like him the same way he wants me to like him. Um, but maybe with a big, strong man like you, I'll feel more protected kind of thing. And uh, Chester can sort of look at people under his uh, under his lowering eyebrows with his shirt off. And people can say, goodness, there's a lot of muscles on Chester. He's got like an eight pack and uh, they keep an eye out for Chester and are. And, and so Chester plays sort of a stalking horse as well as also backup uh, muscle and a reason for Dara to seek uh, the characters out. But he's, you know. You know, p- lifting giant pieces of ice for the diner with just these two giant ice hooks. Everything Chester holds, you should think, I hope Chester doesn't decide to do anything with that pulley or those ice hooks or that shovel or whatever. Right. And we, and we can include a note in his character that he can be sort of a Schrodinger's character, that if the pl- players latch onto him as the obvious menace, that it might in fact be the reversal, that because he's the one who uh, verges on the grotesque. He seems to be part of the conspiracy because he works for the Adamses and, you know, he's seen around all of the other members who are cultists. But in fact, he, uh, you know, despite his uh, apparent menace, is the one who's actually a stand up person who might come in and even, um, you know, help rescue them at the end. And his uh, not quite rightness might have been because he was exposed to the mind monster or the cult and, you know, was driven a little crazy by it. And that's why he uh, doesn't like them and is keeping his eye out on them and will in fact prove to be an ally of the players in that Schrodinger's necessity. Right. So the, basically the methodology that we've uh, followed here then is to uh, look at uh, interrelationships between the uh, GMCs, but also to look at the different roles. We will need uh, supporting players to play in this scenario and find people to fill them. And with those two sort of axes, and also, I guess, sort of a knowledge of what the usual kind of stereotypes are and how you might or might not choose to invert them, uh, we've got our cast of NPCs. So uh, everybody, uh, take the Adamses and their friends, uh, the the Adams family, I guess, as it were, and uh, uh, turn them loose against your players the next time they head to a small town. And uh, we're not going to head to a small town, but we're going to head through this commercial message into our next segment. Hey, 
kids want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group? Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One-to-One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One-to-One book, Cthulhu Confidential, combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos. Complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Crusading journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman. And Robin's hard-boiled private eye Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. So the well-dressed ushers are giving us the programs and telling us how to take our seats in this auditorium that is, in fact, the Culture Hut. The Culture Hut, of course, is uh, one of the uh, rarer huts on the show, but Patreon backer uh, Noel Warford uh, has the following to ask. Can you riff on the theosophical composers of early 20th century America, like Leo Ornstein, Henry Cowell, and Dane Rudyard? P.S. I was able to show off my knowledge of theosophy and my music history yesterday, which comes almost entirely from this podcast, so thanks for that. Well, we're always uh, willing to help people with their uh, their not only their homework, but more importantly, their their showing off in class. Uh, so that that's important. And uh, uh, all of these figures that we're going to talk about, you can find their music now to listen to online on a streaming music service, or probably I imagine they're all on YouTube as well. So it makes it a lot easier for us to talk about music because, of course, you, the listener, really. We're not going to describe music all that well, because music exists as music, not as words. So, Ken, <laughs> which, which of these do we want to uh, start with first? Um, I think that uh, we should probably start with our boy, Henry Cowell, who sort of acts as a, what do I want to say, a hinge between all of those guys. Right, and is probably uh, the best known of all of these figures in uh, classical music circles. He's the one you've probably heard of if you're into this sort of music and all. And I guess we have to sort of set the the stage for the early 20th century. So composers are trying to find uh, new sounds, a new uh, direction. Romanticism has kind of played itself out and uh, things are moving in a more avant-garde direction. And there's kind of two ways out of the cul-de-sac in the 1910s and 1920s. Uh, One of them is the uh, atonal or 12-tone music of Arnold Schoenberg or Alban Berg which is uh, tries to take the musical scale and just completely start over and is, for many people, even people who like classical music, sort of at the edge of what people find listenable. So it's highly experimental. You've got another strain of people who, well, let's find a way that doesn't totally detach from melody as we know it, but finds a new way to explore, often through uh, the, the musical languages of non-Western European uh, country. So uh, then you start to get people like uh, uh, Bartok or uh, Janacek who are looking at Eastern European uh, sounds and taking folk melodies. And uh, and so uh, this is a group of people who are starting in various ways to find that direction, which is still sort of holding on to, to melody in some way, which brings us to Henry Cowell. Yeah. Henry Cowell is one of the guys who is influenced by non-contemporary uh, Western music. First of all, he's, uh, half Irish and he hears a lot of Irish music growing up and that stays with him, uh, his whole life. So Irish folk music becomes part of his beat. And the other half of his beat is the radically futurist music, the sort of out Schoenberg, Schoenberg, out Scriabin's Scriabin type stuff that is coming out. And it is around sort of the combination of Schoenberg and Irish folk that Cowell develops what he calls the tone cluster. And Cowell later on in his life 
pretends he invented the tone cluster, which is probably not true. Because um, Jelly Roll Martin and Scott Joplin did. <laughs> right. And um, uh, Debussy as well. But he claims to have done it first in a tuxedo, I guess. But he's a big, what they call a futurist at the time, and plays a lot of experimental music as well as other uh, composers who are cutting-edge composers, your Scriabins, and uh, eventually uh, Bartok is very influenced by him as well as by Hungarian music. And in 1914, um, he winds up uh, in a theosophical community called Halcyon, which was uh, the town set up by the people of the temple, rather the temple of the people, not the people's temple, the temple of the people. And this was a theosophical group that was founded in Syracuse, New York, uh, in the good old what's left of the burned over district. And then they moved to uh, Southern California near San Luis Obispo uh, because Southern California is where the future crazy town is going to be in America in the new century. And the temple of the people are out at the front of that. And they uh, set up their sort of weird commune. Um, which, depending on who you read, was either a beautiful utopia or a creepy, uh, impoverished town of shanties and, and mud huts. Mm, but either way. That's your basic uh, utopia uh, dichotomy. That is your utopia dichotomy. <laughs> it depends on whether you had to wash the dishes at the utopia or not, which side you fall on generally. Exactly. So he uh, fa- fell in with a guy named John Varian, who was a poet and a writer who was also very much uh, influenced by... Irish mythology and was writing a series of operas, I guess they would be technically, or outside symphonies intended to be performed in sort of a theatrical uh, circumstance based on Irish mythic poetry. Uh, Cowell composed a prelude and as well as the rest of the music to one called the building of Banba. Uh, the prelude is called the tides of Mananan, and it became probably Cowell's best known piece of work because it is barely accessible to humans. <laughs> I should mention that uh, John Varian's sons were both inventors. Cowell also worked with them on developing sort of crazy new technological pianos that would play different things with different hammers. Uh, he later on worked with uh, Leon Theremin. So Cowell was interested also in the physical process of making music. Um, the v- Russell and Sigurd Varian uh, eventually invented the Klystron, which I think is something you use to set off nuclear weapons, but also does other things. But it's a vacuum tube, basically. Right. And then practically, in terms of sound, what a lot of uh, the idea of introducing theosophy to music was basically the idea of introducing uh, Middle Eastern or Far Eastern sounds into music, because, of course, the whole idea of theosophy was to take a global syncretic approach to what was previously Western occultism. And so even much later in his career, Cowell has a piece called Homage to Iran, uh, which is actually quite uh, beguiling. And you could use it as, uh, you know, cool background music when you play a game for your uh, alien planet, Uh, you know, preferably one that smells of cinnamon and saffron or something. So he, I don't think, remains a theosophist for his entire long career, but that idea of uh, working with that sound palette remains with him through his his career. Well, one of the reasons that he breaks, at least publicly, from theosophy is because while he is at Halcyon, the rumor is that he had a homosexual relationship and he was arrested on a morals charge for engaging in what at the time were illegal acts and his past at Halcyon was brought up and he barely escaped a great big long prison time, wound up spending four years in San Quentin, which was probably no picnic, uh, and then uh, got out and married a a, a musicologist, I believe, a a folk music scholar, um, and she had worked to win his freedom from San Quentin, so the degree to which their marriage was sort of contingent on him not bringing up the theosophy anymore, he just had to keep it on the very down low, although much later in his life, he did start giving interviews where he would look back to Halcyon and talk about all the wisdom that he got from theosophy. The other thing that theosophy brings you is a sense of sort of an implicit order in musical tones and uh, a meaning for music in a sort of a Pythagorean sense where the music has a mystical reality outside just the fact that you're playing it. And Cowell absolutely believed that, uh, or believed at the time that a musician was interpreting that the composer was like a shaman and the 
music that he was writing was his communication with the outside sort of world, uh, the, the, the greater outside. And so that's another theosophical concept that, that comes through into his, uh, certain in, in his later writing and to some extent into his music. And that is something that he has in common with Scriabin, who is very, very, uh, well, first of all, insane, but second of all, very much believes that notes and colors and realities and all these other aspects of the universe are tied together in a mystical fashion. So if you get into a deep dive in Scriabin, you're sort of getting into this sort of Russian version of theosophy that Scriabin believed. Although I don't know that Scriabin was ever formally a theosophist. He just believed the same sort of things because it's very much in the air in the Russian uh, avant-garde. Right. He, he did have a, a musical piece that was supposed to bring about the end of the world. So <laughs> yes, the Mysterium, yeah. which I guess, you know, either it, it was played and worked or, uh, you know, Scriabin was crazy. You take your choice. Uh, and I guess that kind of brings us to uh, Leo Ornstein. He has a really interesting story. Listening to his music, he's the one who I found uh, most sort of uh, Bartoki or Scriabin-y. He had a big concert piano career in Europe in the 20s. He moves to the U.S. He's not rediscovered again for another uh, 50 years. So this is a real... Uh, you know, anybody who's still working away in whatever creative field they're in and, and still thinks that, uh, you know, someday they're, uh, they're going to be recognized. You can look at the story of Leo Ornstein. So in the 1970s, people finally start to discover his uh, musical compositions. And so, uh, he, uh, you know, gets late life recognition and he makes it all the way to age 106, uh, when he dies in 2002, uh, apparently being a classical musician is very good for your health. There's a lot of long-lived conductors, and I guess piano. I guess moving your arms around a lot is uh, is really yeah. good for your health. Um, he's the one who I couldn't find much of a direct Theosophy connection. He knew Cowell and Rudyard. I, I I was not able to find anything directly Theosophical about Ornstein. Ornstein, very like I say, very influenced by Scriabin. So in that sense, Theosophist, but. I don't think that he studied theosophy. He wasn't a member of a theosophical group that I could find. He certainly was part of that avant-garde that was uh, open to and generally influenced by theosophy uh, in the, uh, you know, turn of the century, that uh, uh, first decade thereabouts, right before World War I. But he was, I think, much more influenced by, by futurism uh, rather than theosophy. And so to the extent that he has a theosophical impulse, he manages to keep it quiet or uh, tamp it down. He keeps it off Google. <laughs> yes, he, he, he certainly does okay, that. Okay, so, so let's um, move on again, then to the uh, very overtly mystical uh, Dane Rudyard. He was born in France and he did most of his work in the U.S. And mm -hmm. uh, if you listen to his music, there's a lot of piano, uh, uh, solo piano uh, stuff, and it is... Uh, has it's the one you listen to and you go, oh yeah, this is overtly sort of has a mystical kind of searching quality. And sound-wise, it's sort of if if Eric Satie and the out piano player, uh, out jazz piano player Keith Jarrett are different subway stations. Dane Rudyard is the transfer point <laughs> that you move <laughs> toward them. And there you uh, go. He is not only a composer, but he is an astrologer. And he's not just yeah, he not is. just any kind of astrologer. He's a humanistic astrologer until he later decides that what he really is is a transpersonal astrologer. And his uh, attitude toward this, I guess, is uh, heavily influenced uh, by Jung and by Jose Arguelles, who's uh, a guy who took a lot of Jungian ideas and sort of uh, mystified them up <laughs> further. Yes, <laughs> made them almost completely unreadable, even for Jung. Right, and so basically, uh, as much as I can tell what uh, transpersonal astrology is, is that it uh, downgrades the idea of it's all about your physical relationship on the planet to a particular star, but it's more about the symbolic or archetypal uh, relationships, which would make sense if you're basing your thing uh, on Jung. And uh, he wrote a lot of uh, occult books, like one called The Planetization of Consciousness. Have you uh, further explored the occult thought of uh, Dane Rudyard? I have not, uh, because astrology, by and large, is a null set to me. There is a lot of very tame stuff written about it, much of it by Rudyard's good friend Alice Bailey, uh, who sort of founded the New Age in America. 
through uh, tiresomely peppy astrology. And uh, so by and large, astrology is pretty boring. Every now and again, you find something fun like the Decans or uh, something where they find someone who does all the uh, natal horoscopes for famous serial killers and tries to find serial killer stars. That's fun stuff. But by and large, astrology, certainly the sort of theoretical feel-good astrology of your Dane Rudyards and your Alice Baileys is just a bunch of sappy stuff. And I'm, you know, I got other stuff I got to do. Right. And he has that sort of quasi-scientific Jungian vibe where he is uh, attempting to analyze things rationally, but not hyper-rationally in a way that kills them. Not the very much. He is also uh, a fan of uh, Henri Bergson, who, of course, was one of the latter, uh, very last minute, or not last minute, very late members of the Golden Dawn. Uh, Henri Bergson later on became a grown-up philosopher, and so it's his philosophy, not so much his Golden Dawnness, but his philosophy is very much, again, one of there being a larger... Uh, existence outside us, which is a fundamentally magical insight. Um, and Bergson as well, I believe influences our buddy Ornstein, but not in the way of, um, being a, a, mag- a magician, but more in the way of sort of the, the notion of, uh, a, a super sensible order that exists. Now you have a, a fourth name that you want, uh, Noel to be able to lay on his music teacher, yeah, I which do. is, which is Ruth Crawford. Uh, Ruth Crawford is another, composer. She ran in the same circles as Ornstein. She moved to Chicago in 1921, where she fell in with a Canadian theosophist, the composer and pianist Dion Lavoie Hurst. Dion turned her on to Scriabin, introduced her to Rudyard and Cowell. They became friends. They became part of a musical sort of uh, society with the uh, music teacher Charles Seeger, who had, it turns out, been Henry Cowell's original mentor at Berkeley. Cowell is who convinced Seeger to teach Ruth Crawford. So she studies uh, composition with Charles Seeger and then marries him in 1932. And they move to DC in 1936. And she begins working with Alan Lomax and moves into folk music. So her theosophical arc begins with strongly theosophical implications and compositions. So is she Pete Seeger's stepmother or mother? She is stepmother, stepmother of Pete Seeger. Uh, Charles Seeger had two wives. Pete is of the first marriage and Ruth is the second marriage. But still, you know, hanging out with Pete Seeger. And while we're bringing up modern people, um, Ornstein, I believe, taught jazz at one point or taught uh, piano to jazz guys. So among his students were John Coltrane. So there you go. Uh, there we go. Uh, that's a whole other form of, of mysticism. Uh, and and also sort of bringing different kinds of tonality into an, a pre-existing uh, art form. So a tangential connection there, um, not to say tendentious, but Ruth Crawford uh, seems to have been, you know, able to give as good as she got, at least in the twenties. She, she put uh, the poems of Carl Sandburg to music, which in a way is the sort of American folk uh, idiom that people like Aaron Copeland were studying uh, without quite so much uh, ultra modernism on the top of it. And then uh, bring, brings that whole thing around when she marries Charles Seeger and start studying uh, folk music with Alan Lomax in D.C. Well, I think uh, we've uh, created a crib sheet, uh, not only for Noel, but for anyone else taking 20th century uh, music, and can uh, therefore pat ourselves on the back, as per usual, and move through this exciting message to our next hot and or segment. What happens when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it? Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X.
And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Simon Proctor. Modern Myths. Jenks. Andrew Young. And Ash Jackson is the Scroll Bard. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Ronan Kennedy asks Ken and Robin, Something I have done in the past with good results in fantasy games is to play an NPC who is a member of the party. I do this partly because it allows me to participate more in the game, and partly because it allows me to influence the party's decision-making when they risk doing something that will truncate the plot or make me have to improvise, which I am not so good at. Recently, I find it isn't working so well, and I'm finding it difficult to give the NPC real depth. Any thoughts on this as a technique, and how to make it work better? Robin, this, to me, is the kind of question that begins, I'm doing something you would never do, how do I do it better? And so I'm not sure that I have a super productive answer, but of course, this being uh, Ken and Robin ask time, we will certainly give it our best shot. Do you have better experiences than I have? bringing your own uh, NPC along for the ride? Um, I, too, would never do this. Uh, and I, uh, you will note that I uh, left uh, Ronan's question at its original length, uh, rather than uh, truncating it, as I so often do, uh, because I think the proviso that he gives us, that he does this in order to compensate for other uh, self-identified uh, challenges in his gaming, is, I think, a key point. Right. So that if improvisation is tough for you and you need to be able to sort of prod the uh, players around a bit in order to uh, avoid them running into this worse problem, then makes sense to run the risks entailed in having uh, an NPC along for the ride. So let's talk about what those risks are before we talk about uh, how to do it better. And the risk, uh, obviously, is that you... You're, you're hogging the spotlight and you're taking both roles of player and of uh, GM. And in a crunchy game, uh, it also is a difficulty of focus. If you have a, you know, have to keep track of the bard's uh, spell list and the creatures during a fight, that's uh, sort of a, a doubly complicated. So you, you And it leads to the uh, spectacle of the GM rolling dice against himself while the players sit and watch, which is generally not super entertaining. Right, and the GM talking to himself when they're negotiating with uh, somebody else. or So th there's all sorts of, of uh, difficulties that you uh, want to avoid. And so the first question I would have is, is it in fact a problem that the character lacks depth. You uh, may want to think about the question uh, in a different framework, which is how good a foil am I being for the rest of the group? So that you are not trying to have a character who is as interesting and varied as theirs, but one that rather brings out the interesting variance in their character, so that he is obviously much more of a sidekick to the rest of the group than uh, any of the player characters are, and that sort of pulls you away from that problem of being of taking too much of the spotlight. And uh, so the question is, are your players feeling that the problem with your doing this is that the character isn't complicated enough? Because chances are uh, that might not be what they're uh, worried about. It's likely not high on their priority list. So what I would look at rather than how do I make him deeper is how do I make him relate in an interesting way to what each of the other players are doing? So if, for example, you have, uh, you know, a, a paladin in the group who is uh, going through this uh, moral crisis, what can you come up with to have your character do that 
reflects or builds on or gives the paladin character something to grab onto and give her character the the cool spotlight moment. And, you know, we can spin that out into a whole bunch of other different things. Or, you know, if there's a character who's sort of the the happy-go-lucky sort of goofball character, you could uh, give that character something to do by sort of setting yourself up to be sort of the, uh, the Frank Burns, the comic antagonist character who the uh, player can then riff off of and make fun of and, uh, and get to do the thing that they want to do at, at the table so that you get to do cool things and your character is integral to the group, but it's integral in a way that, they, that you are uh, throwing the ball in turn to each of the other players. I think another possibility, and this sort of is orthogonal maybe, or next door to your concept of being a foil, is when you make your next NPC to be part of the group, consider making an NPC that is deliberately designed to be an information conveyor and very little else. So you might think I should play the Falcon, who is the familiar of the wizard or the a beloved Falcon of the Paladin or something. And they fly out and scout things and then come back. And because of their mystical bond with their uh, master, they can convey the information that going left is a land of wind and ghosts, but going right is a land of treasure and pre-plotted encounters. And maybe that's what we want to do. Yes. I'm, I'm the automaton who has all of the information from the grand archive uh, loaded into my hydraulic circuits. Right. And so uh, I can, you know, be a sort of, comically uh, impersonal in a sort of a C-3PO sort of way and provide exposition when needed. Uh, and, and again, uh, you're performing an important service for the group, which also happens to be the service you need in order to make sure they don't require you to improvise too heavily, uh, but again, is uh, otherwise getting out of their way. And it's also because you're playing a robot or a falcon or a cat or whatever, Playing a, a broader, more stereotypical character is actually good because you want the players to always remember, oh, we're not dealing with our buddy Ronan. We're dealing with a kitty. And of course, the kitty can't give us anything useful and, or help in a fight. All it can do is, you know, meow insistently that we should go left, not right or whatever, provide the information from its, you know, mystical cat senses or its scouting or whatever that happens to be that provides this sort of nudge and participation element that, uh, that, that, that Ronan needs. So right. you don't have to worry, oh, what's my cat's motivation? Motivation is scritches and tuna, same as all cats. Um, what's my uh, automaton's motivation? Clanking along and uttering mordant commentary. That's what all automatons do. So you don't have to worry about personalizing the character. And also, if you make a character who is by and large useless in a fight, you don't wind up with the uh, unappealing possibility that the GM has to roll against themselves in a fight at some critical moment. And so not only does the GM win the fight for the players, he does so without the players ever actually getting to contribute, which you definitely don't want, I would think, in a fantasy game. Now, if the issue really is that the uh, players love having you along as another player as well as a GM, but are hoping that you do something uh, different or deeper, uh, there are a couple of things that you can uh, do about that, you could have all of the other players define who your character is. So just sort of go around the room and say, okay, well, you tell me one thing about this next character I'm going to play, uh, and you tell me another thing, and you tell me another thing, and you tell me another thing, and then you've been hit with a character who's not necessarily the one that you would play that reflects all of your mannerisms. And so then your uh, extra creative energy is going into... Uh, doing something that you wouldn't have thought of yourself. And if the question really, really is not about variety, but we are happy to have you play another character, but we want a more psychological depth, uh, give them dramatic pulls from Hill Folk, which is a, a basic opposition that uh, your character is torn between. So, you know, is your character a person of action or a person of contemplation? Are you dark or are you light? Are you... Uh, sane or are you delusional if you're an some if you're of, a half elf are you human or are you elven right um some sort of internal conflict where you can go one way or the other in different situations and so um and and that uh seemed very simple but it's actually the basis of uh that plus uh development of the story over time and depth is is where you know all sense of a rounded real 
character that you care about comes from in, in any narrative form. Do you have any other further uh, tips or, or tricks to add? Or uh, I think we... that we have managed to provide any number of approaches for Ronan and for his uh, cat, Hamlet, half-elf, robot, or uh, bard. Okay, well, I, I know that our, our next uh, segment is going to be uh, capacious, so let's get to it uh, post-haste. Uh, that is through this upcoming exciting message. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys, sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. The gorgeous new hardback edition ships to a store shelf near you in December. Featuring full-color paintings by Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales by contributors such as... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready. Ready for you! It's time once more to open up the Elliptony hut, but this time when we open it up, there's no alien big cat inside. In fact, there's a, a wooden, uh, looks like a booth of some kind. And when you open the door and there's like a set of, uh, there's like a seat that you can sit on and close it up and sit inside the booth. Because, uh, uh, Ken, as I just uh, alluded to, uh, this is probably more than one segment can bear, but uh, we are here at the behest of... Anders Gabrielson to talk about Wilhelm Reich. Patreon backer Anders Gabrielson. Patreon backer Anders Gabrielson. And uh, Wilhelm Reich is, I think, the the counterculture's favorite renegade psychoanalyst. He uh, is born in 1897 in the Ukraine. Unless you count Jung as a renegade. Well, on the renegade stakes. Yes. of, Of the people who sat at the foot of Freud and broke from him, if you're going to pick one renegade, and one of them is young, and one of them is Reich, you pick Reich. Reich is the renegadiest. Absolutely. No question. Uh, certainly, Freud thought that everybody who disagreed with him, as almost everybody who worked with him eventually did, was a renegade. Yes. So, by Weird, Freud, that. <laughs> right. But nonetheless, I think we were safe in saying that uh, William Reich is the, the renegadiest and counterculturalist of the, uh, the psychoanalyst. So, he was born in 1897 in the Ukraine. Died in 1957 in an American prison, and uh, in between, the elliptony uh, kept on coming. It, so it, it flowed thick and fast. Right. So he was a, a Marxist and an anti-fascist. He wrote a book in 1933 about the uh, uh, psychoanalytic roots of, of fascism, uh, and his main thesis that connects everything else throughout his life uh, was that uh, neurosis uh, stems not from childhood trauma, but from widespread societal repression of people's ordinary healthy sexual impulses. Uh, this was an analysis he called Sex Paul. And uh, that's uh, where he started out. Uh, anything else you want to you take up the narrative of his early years? Anything else we need to uh, uh, get to before things get uh, increasingly uh, elliptonic? Uh, increasingly weird? Um... Well, his, uh, as with so many people uh, in that era and that milieu who turned into psychoanalysts, he had a weird home life. And how weird is, I suppose, a question for other people who are better suited to ask that question. But if you're thinking, oh, I know how weird, yeah, you're on the right track, trust me. Um, he had uh, an early habit of visiting brothels. He used to uh, engage in sex with the servants, which one can draw all manner of directions of problematicity, and I think they probably all are, and claimed later on to have been sexually obsessed with his mother, which may have just been, you know, how to get on Freud's good side, but it might have been for real. So he keeps going on, going on, and uh, that is sort of the uh, reason, I think, that he thinks, uh, maybe it's not me, maybe it's society that's, uh, that's, that's weird. And that sort of drives him 
initially, even before there's fascism and even before he becomes a Marxist, he is got this sort of conception that it is social pressure and social damage that creates what he calls character armor around a person. And that breaking through that character armor, possibly by touching your patients, is the way you cause them to uh, get free of that repression and return to their natural good state. And it's all the patient touching that keeps getting him in trouble, especially when he starts talking about how teenagers need to be touched just like everyone else. And that is why the Danish Communist Party bans him from being a Danish communist before he even tries to join the Danish Communist Party, because they may be Danish communists, but they're not weirdos. And that's sort of what keeps following him around this sort of, um, uh, one hesitates to say rumor, because I think it's pretty much straight up true that he engaged in, at the very least, uh, what psychoanalysts would consider inappropriate touching with his patients and who knows what else. Right. So his, his aggressive massage system was called a vegetotherapy mm-hmm. and, uh, even if you uh, leave out the, the possibility or likelihood that that involved sexual assault, it was like an aggressive manhandling of the, the patient and like he'd be sticking his thumb in your jaw and, yes. you know, it's sort of, uh, uh, you know, if you're being attacked by a chiropractor, basically. Right. And, uh, and of course, <laughs> in that's, your underclothing. Yes. And of course, that's a, an entirely different approach than psychoanalysis, which is about you sit in a chair and talk and maintain distance from, uh, your therapist. But, but he said that the distance with the therapist was yet another piece of character armor. That yes. you have to break down that distance. Um, so vegetotherapy is, uh, okay, this is seems odd, but uh, what if we compare that to his next discovery of <laughs> bions, uh, which is uh, his discovery of the 30s. Uh, uh, what's a bion, Ken? What's a bion? What isn't a bion? A bion is the tiny particle that is between biology and electricity. And our boy Reich has long de- decided that since the core function of humanity is the libido, that it must, because he's a Marxist, have a material cause, right? There has to be a, a fluid or an energy or something that you can measure that has the material cause of why you are into one person, but not into another person, why you can get it up once, but not another time. And he begins looking for this physical cause of the libido by investigating electricity and investigating sort of, you would call it microbiology if he had been remotely at all trained in microbiology. But what it is, is (laughs) looking through a microscope and guessing. (laughs) Yes. I think he saw some things wiggling under under a a microscope. Some of them were blue and those were good. And some of them were red and those were bad. Oh, we know that the red blue dichotomy is going to continue. It is going to continue. The red are the deadly T bacilli. The T stands for taut. And the blue ones are bions, the blue bions that will eventually become the fundamental material that drives the whole universe into goodness. Uh, right. Orgone. Not to give it away, but his orgone. Right. But first, he, he's in Austria in the uh, late 30s. He's a, an avowed anti-fascist. No, he's in so, he, he's in Norway in the late 30s. Oh, he, is he? He's in Austria in the early 30s, which is why he winds up in Norway. Okay. But... <laughs> So where does he emigrates from Norway when he emigrates? Yeah, when he emigrates to America, he leaves Norway. Okay. Um, The Norwegians hate him because of the whole touching his patients and underage sex thing. They also believe that he's crazy. The only reason they're hanging on to him is that previously the Danes condemned him. Right. So they don't. There's that whole Danish Norwegian thing. Well, they uh, they they'd expelled Trotsky. Um, and, uh, that had been a big deal. And so they didn't want to expel other communists without a good reason. And the good reason being he's a crazy toucher of people who makes up bions is not a good enough reason, but the king uh, of Norway passes a new edict saying, if you're going to practice psychoanalysis, you have to have royal permission. And guess who's never getting royal permission, Wilhelm Reich. So they let him stay in Norway, but they prevented him from being a psychoanalyst. Right. So he goes to the land of opportunity. That's right. The land where no one will ever check to see whether you have a medical license. No one cares. No one cares. To America. And in 1940, he discovers orgone energy, and therefore, uh, which is the ultimate healing power of the sex force. And if you want to be uh, healed of your uh, mental or later physical problems, like cancer, like all you your just, problems, yeah, you just like like all miracle cures. It, it wouldn't be a miracle cure if it just fixed one or three things. Uh, so he develops the orgone accumulator, 
Uh, anything else we need to know about your uh, your orgone accumulator? Well, you can make it yourself. Obviously, the plans are online. Um, feel free. It is a box. It's made out of plywood. I don't know if the plywood is important. It may have just been cheap, but you have to line it with uh, metal. Uh, sheet iron, I believe, is what they use, but there's also another layer of rocks that goes in there. Uh, I'm sure it's all very technical, but all those layers uh, will help the orgone build up, and I guess it's because the orgone flows in from the sun or wherever orgone comes from, and then it can't get back out through all those layers, and so you wind up with an accumulator, hence the term organ accumulator. So the orgone concentration inside the box can be up to five times the level of orgone in the open air. And uh, that is science. And you know it's science because he took his organ accumulator to Albert Einstein. And Albert Einstein and he went down in the basement and experimented with orgone for 10 days. And Einstein said, the basement is just warm. <laughs> I have solved your orgone problem. It is the No, it's a conspiracy, I tell you. Yeah, he was exactly. sure that it was a conspiracy that ripped Einstein away from him. Exactly. And Reich uh, became very mad that Einstein stopped answering his letters. But, you know, hey, shout out to Albert Einstein. Crazy person comes up to you with a box that will solve orgone and cure cancer. You don't call the FBI. You say, well, let's go down to the basement and play around with it. See if it does. So good for you, Albert Einstein. Jeff Baptist and scientific method. Yep. And I guess this was the point where he had his headquarters in Maine called uh, Organon. Organon. And so uh, I guess this brings us now to the uh, early 50s, 1951, and he discovers in the world of duality, if there's good orgone energy, there must also logically, science tells us, be deadly orgone radiation. And uh, this becomes increasingly his concern. And he also develops a cloud-busting machine in order to use his knowledge of uh, the universal sex force in order to uh, break up clouds and, and, and make it rain. rain. Now, uh, we should say at this point that in fairness to Wilhelm Reich, which is not a phrase I utter often, he was in fact arrested by the FBI in December, 1941 and held for three weeks uh, because they had him confused with a different guy named William Reich, who was a communist activist, uh, ran a bookstore, distributed communist materials. And uh, therefore, was a problem for the FBI. Right. And and generally a, a bad time to have Reich as your last name. Yes. And especially if you have copies of books by both Hitler and Trotsky in your house, then people start asking questions, especially if they're the FBI. But right. this is the sort of thing that causes would cause a more stable person than Wilhelm Reich to get weird notions about persecution and uh, conspiracies. Right. But by the, but by the uh, 50s, when he's cloud-busting... He's got a uh, positive conspiracy theory. He believes that Eisenhower is protecting him and that whenever a plane flies overhead, that's a sign that uh, that Ike is uh, winking at him and making sure that he's protected. And another thing that I like about Orgone, uh, or not about Orgone, the other thing I like about Reich is that like the Red Skull, he changes his ideology to suit the needs of the day. So after once he's running around America selling Orgone boxes and breaking up clouds, he has discovered that the communists and the fascists are on the same side, and they are the red fascists. And the red fascists employ what he calls Higgs, hoodlums in government, mostly the FBI and the FDA, to harass and persecute William Reich. So the term Higgs is just great. And also, red fascists is the kind of thing that you know, there you go, uh, Wilhelm Reich, way to make an omelet out of a broken egg. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, on a certain methodology level, he's he's not so wrong. Yeah, well, yeah, certainly there are there are Higgs. Certainly there are red fascists. Whether or not they amounted to a persecution of Wilhelm Reich, I guess agree to disagree. Yes, there's 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 the analysis and the and the action there. They're two yes. different things. But he's also not just is he being benevolently watched over by Eisenhower, making it rain, bringing people to orgasm legally or illegally. He is also protecting us from DORs, deadly orgone radiators, which are the UFOs, uh, also known as energy alphas. And they would fly in with their black anti-orgone energy because the, the UFOs fly by sucking the orgone out of the air and spewing out anti-orgone uh, DOR behind them. And so he is in at war with uh, UFOs um, uh, by shooting them down with his uh, cloud busters. So his focused orgone cannon that he uses to bust up clouds and make it rain, he also uses as anti-UFO artillery. So he's out there possibly alone. I guess he probably has, 
you know, <laughs> sexy former patients and uh, innocent victims of, of, of other sorts helping him out. Just as it's, it's not a miracle cure unless it cures everything, mm-hmm. it's not a cloud-busting device unless it also shoots down UFOs. That's right. Elementary logic. Yeah. That's just, that's just, that's just rationality, really. So, uh, he has all manner of uh, excitement. The FDA, uh, jumps on him because he starts sending orgone accumulators through the mail. And, uh, that turns out to be mail fraud, according to the FDA, because you're sending a medically fraudulent device and making claims for it. And they wind up trying him for that. And that is why he winds up put in prison is for sending obscenity and medical fraud through the mail. Right. And of course, that's what gives him the cachet that then causes the, the counterculture in the next decade to embrace him because his truth was so powerful that it was suppressed by the U.S. government. So a uh, starting, I guess, kind of in the late 60s, he becomes a, a cult figure. Uh, and so all sorts of people across the spectrum from William S. Burroughs to Norman Mailer uh, Norman Mailer had an orgone accumulator. Sean Connery once sat in a an orgone accumulator. Uh, there's a uh, so it works. It, it works. Yeah. It ob- yes. I mean, if you if you go into an orgone accumulator and you come out Sean Connery, yeah. Sign and obviously, me up. if other ones don't work, it's because Sean has all the organ. Yeah, he drank up all the orgone. Yeah, and uh, there's a film from the uh, then Yugoslavian. Filmmaker uh, Dusan Makaveev called W.R. Mysteries of the Organism, uh, which is a uh, hilarious satire of uh, Yugoslavian communism and a uh, sort of a documentary about uh, sex and the counterculture in America woven together. When I saw it in film class, it was banned in Ontario. Whoa. Banned in Ontario? Yes. Did it have disrespectful portrayals of syrup? Uh, it had Susie Plastercaster in it. All right. There you go. Um, and so there were some uh, erect members, which was uh, <gasps> uh, could only be seen in an educational setting at, at that time. <laughs> well, that was really how Wright got in trouble in the first place. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of erect members in an educational setting. Exactly. It's also how Maccabeev got in trouble, and he also <laughs> had to leave home. Um and uh, I guess also another weird uh, pop culture reference, the Kate Bush song, Cloud Busting, is about Wilhelm Reich, and it's uh, by way of being based on a memoir by his son of his experiences of growing up uh, with uh, Wilhelm Reich as, as a dad. So uh, next time you uh, hear uh, Cloud Busting, well, that's, uh, that's about Reich. Yeah, that's probably about Reich. Um, yeah, so he's... He becomes sort of a, a weird cult figure. It should be noted that uh, say what you want about preventing people from sending organ accumulators through the mail. The FDA then, of course, overreacted and burned all of his books in public in New York, which is the sort of two on the nose touch that you try not to see from your federal agencies. Right. The, the ACLU intervened, but Reich broke from them because they wouldn't speak up in favor of his organ accumulators. They just uh, cared about his speech rights. Yeah. <laughs> the psychoanalysis wishes he would shut up and not keep embarrassing them. Uh, real science mostly ignores Wilhelm Reich because he's mostly crazy. But I guess as long as people are still being beset by Higgs and red fascists, there will always be a place in your heart for Wilhelm Reich and uh, a place in a box lined with sheet iron wait, waits for you. Like I say, you can go online and build your own organ accumulators and the FDA can't do jack to stop you. And surely that's the greatest victory of all. Right. And uh, now you can listen to podcasts while you're in your organ accumulator and it passes the time better. It, it could also lead to dangerous qualities of orgone. You could be even, even, even seven times as much orgone from listening to a podcast in an organ accumulator. So uh, right. keep an eye on that. Okay. Well, in that case, before people overload on orgone, it's time to call this podcast to a close. Or a climax. <laughs> Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Reserve a spot in the Orgon booth alongside such patrons as... Drew Eichholz. Daniel Callahan. Daniel Markwig. Derek McMullen.
Mullen. And Eben Lindsay. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other Erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.